Hi, welcome. My name is Michael. I'm joined by Karam Singh, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. He uh, is joining me to chat about Transparency International's latest Corruption Perception Index, the CPI. Just to be clear, this is something that looks at public sector corruption on a scale of naught to 100, where naught is squeaky clean and 100 is rotten to the core. Mr. Singh, thanks for your time. A decade ago, we were sitting at 69th in the world on this list. How are things looking for 2021? Uh, well, you know, there hasn't really been that much movement. I mean, there's there's two rankings. There's the, the rankings in terms of the countries uh, that you've referred to, and then the ranking on the, the scale. And I think our score is about 44. And what we've seen over uh, a 10-year period is not a lot of movement in, in, in terms of the perceptions either uh, much worse or much better. So the picture that's being painted is one of, of sort of stagnation when it comes to our progress in the fight against corruption. Well, one thing that uh, all presidents have in common is they, they love to speak about their fight against corruption. I was looking through some old State of the Nation addresses by Mr. Zuma, who just coincidentally happens to be in court today. But he said in 2017, quote, the fight against corruption continues. Then in 2018, uh, you have President Ramaphosa saying, quote, this is the year in which we are going to turn the tide of, uh, of corruption in our public institutions. Ah, sigh. Are we a country of empty platitudes and sloganeering, Mr. Singh? Well, I mean, I think there's an element of that, unfortunately, which is part of our part of our body politic. And, and you make a good point. I mean, we we have um, a, a state capture commission that's issuing reports now, and we have a, a record of 10 years of state capture, which happened under the hand of Jacob Zuma. But we know that throughout that period, Jacob Zuma would make a, a very strong statements about the commitment in the fight against corruption. I note, you know, he signed very quite quite a large number of SIU proclamations to to initiate investigations into corruption. So I think it's something that we flagged, you know, that there is this gap. Um, the the so-called new administration has been in for, you know, since 2017 now. And while we have seen some progress uh, reestablishing institutions of our democracy, particularly I'm thinking about SARS, to a certain extent the Hawks, to a certain extent the National Prosecuting Authority, um, you know, despite getting some of those institutions onto a better wicket with uh, new and invigorated leadership. We've seen a host of new corruption scandals in this period, uh, unrelated to uh, the so-called era of state capture, such as the the PPE uh, uh, procurement uh, um, corruption that we've seen over the last two years. So it's not clear that we're in a new dawn. It's not clear that we've turned a corner. And it's certainly not clear that we're matching uh, our actions and our progress with the kind of rhetoric that we hear. Yeah, well, you, you beat me to my next question. And that was, you have no greater illustration of how rotten the entire procurement system is in the public sector than the the finding by the SIU that over 60% of, of government's procurement spend on PPE was found to be irregular. The looters looted. Uh, was it naive of us to think um, that there would be a sense of conscience, a, a sense of morality that would prevail 
at a time when a pandemic was wreaking havoc on the country and the world? I think it was naive, you know. I mean, I think our experience, unfortunately, particularly, you know, at least over the, the last 20 years, is that when whenever a significant amount of money is being mobilized by the state to address an issue, that there's more than leakage, that there's actually a kind of systemic uh, uh, attempt to to redivert that money into into different, you know, private uh, hands. We've seen this going back to the arms deal, which was in the first administration of the first uh, uh, democratic government in South Africa, going back to the 1990s. And, you know, we, we can now chart a period of time where we just, we've known what's required. We, we know how corruption functions. If you go back to SIU reports going back over 10 years, they can tell you that pro- procurement was a huge area of vulnerability. So we've known the issues for a long time. We haven't put the right measures in place. We haven't taken the right actions. We haven't built up the right capacity within the state to really address the problem uh, as we understand it. So hopefully there's some new impetus with the the findings of the the Zondo Commission, but um, there's still so much work that needs to be done before we can even begin to think that we are uh, uh, addressing or winning the fight against corruption. I read about the the National Anti-Corruption Strategy, NACS, adopted in November 2020. Um, Is it being used as a paperweight somewhere? Is it sort of yet another document strategy, a policy that we've come up with that actually has no tangible impact at all? That remains to be seen, Michael. Um, You know, there was a lot of a lot of time, a lot of effort uh, put into the development of the strategy. It was approved by cabinet. It gives us a little bit of a roadmap in terms of the priorities that need to be done. But everything just seems to move so slowly, you know, um, when it comes to making the big decisions, when it comes to a, a real law reform or real institutional reform, it seems that the can forever gets kicked down the road. And, and we have a, a two-year advisory committee before we then get an independent anti-corruption agency. You know, we just can't af- afford uh, uh, to wait, you know, because we, we've got the next PPE scandal just around the corner. So I fear that politics, uh, particularly factional politics within the governing party, uh, casts a big shadow over these commitments. And I think that's why we see uh, such big talk and, and such little follow-through. What's happening in South Africa doesn't seem to be unique if you look at what uh, the the CPI, um, this Corruption Perception Index, found in that almost 90%, I think it was something like 87% of countries uh, in the world haven't made any progress uh, in the CPI over the last decade. What, what do you think is behind this? You know, they're, def- they're, they're definitely competing issues, I think, that inform that. I think one of the big things that's leading to that has been the slide globally around democracy and democratic standards, you know, which which isn't necessarily specifically our problem in South Africa, but we do see in many jurisdictions around the world, in the developing world, in, in the former, you know, Eastern Europe, uh, a kind of slide towards an authoritarianism. And I think with that, with a, a, a decline in democratic standards, there are greater vulnerabilities for corruption because those are systems which are not particularly interested in principles around transparency and accountability. So, you know, where we see politicians kind of amassing 
personal power. I think we we can we can we know that along with that comes comes some of the corruption challenges. So I think that's a big big uh, uh, phenomenon of the recent period. And it's something which we need to be mindful of in South Africa because we can't rest on our laurels and think that we have a, a democratic state and a democratic constitution which is stable and which also isn't uh, doesn't come under pressure and come under threat from different forces, whether that be uh, uh, threats on independent media or the type of attacks that we see on the judiciary. You know, two of the pillars, I would say, of our current uh, uh, constitutional dispensation. Now, you as Corruption Watch have, have mentioned the sterling work done by the State Capture Inquiry in sh- shining a, a spotlight on corruption within the public sector, uh, private sector, yes, but but uh, public sector in particular. Has it been followed up by prosecutions? I, it's a bit of a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But, you know, has the NPA been up to task here? Not yet. Not yet, Michael. You know, and, and last week, um, in fact, the National Director of public prosecutions had a briefing session with uh, uh, different civil society organizations. And, you know, there was a, a, a very strong tone coming in that from the MPA of uh, mea culpas, of apologies, of kind of trying to sensitize us in civil society around the real challenges that they face. Uh, I remember when Hermione Cronier came in as head of the independent directorate, she uh, and um, the national director spoke about the challenges of recapacitating the institution, of of kind of fixing the plane while you still needed to fly it. So, I think we are we are we are sitting with those kinds of challenges, and um, the MPA has its work cut out for it. But we've received all the assurances that these are cases which will be prioritized. And and um, again, um, yeah. The, the, the MPA really has its work cut out for it, uh, and we would expect to see some progress in this space over this immediate period coming up. It's amazing the sort of deja vu one felt reading one of the recommendations of the State Capture Inquiry Part 1, a return to a truly independent anti-corruption agency mm, mimicking the Scorpions. Have we gone full circle? It got disbanded. We realized, oh, we actually needed it, and there are hopefully plans to put it back in place. Have we just gone full circle? Absolutely. You know, and, and these kinds of recommendations have been on the table. You mentioned the NACs. The NACs also talks about a process that would lead to the establishment of an independent anti-corruption agency. It's found expression in resolutions of the NEC, of the ANC. But even if you go back to the Glenister II decision from 2011, you know, the, the, the decision of, uh, of Deputy Chief Justice then at the time, Mosineki, you know, spoke very clearly about the constitutional requirements and the requirements in terms of South Africa's obligations under the UN Convention Against Corruption for the establishment of an independent anti-corruption agency. You know, whether that agency ends up looking like something like the Scorpions, it certainly would have aspects of how the Scorpions approach their work, which is a prosecution-led based investigation. Because we know that whenever there's a handoff in the criminal justice system from one entity, say one entity that's investigating, to a completely separate entity that's going to be prosecuting, that's where we face challenges, that's where we face delays. So, um, yeah, that, that, that investigation, prosecution-led investigations model uh, has been tried and tested around the world, and we would expect to see that as part of this new uh, institutional realignment, uh, 
you know, again, are, are we being naive? Is it too optimistic to expect this in this immediate period? Well, it shouldn't be because it's part of the national anti-corruption strategy and we know that it's the right thing to do. One of the things that came out very strongly from the first report was the extent to which whistleblowers are incredibly important uh, in South Africa's fight against corruption. Now, whether they are appreciated by the government is and defended and protected by the government is a separate story, but just how important they are can't be overstated. The protection of whistleblowers in South Africa, is the South African government not, it's talking the talk, it's not really walking the walk? You've seen attacks on, well, Athol Williams is out of the country, the man fears for his life. Johan von Lochrenberg, Temba Maseko, their homes are broken into. They don't believe it to be any coincidence. Babita Diokarin is murdered in her driveway. Uh, it's not a good time to be a whistleblower in South Africa. No, it's, it's dangerous. Um, it comes with lots of perils, perils of one's personal safety, one's uh, employability, uh, the financial challenges that come with uh, getting lawyered up if you end up, end up in a in a court case or you end up losing your job because you've blown the whistle again you know these are these are things that we've known about for a long time uh, the protected disclosures act uh, was progressive when it came into effect there were amendments to it to broaden the definition but we we need a much stronger uh, system that promotes whistleblower protection and you know we're even beginning now to see the types of recommendations around thinking about how we can incentivize whistleblowing, that if we have a regime where we're able to uh, have civil recoveries as a result of corruption investigations that are the direct result of information that's provided by whistleblowers, that there should be some kind of mechanism within our law to provide some type of compensation to whistleblowers in, 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 in those circumstances. They're very advanced systems like we see in, in the United States, but there are other types of systems where we see awards that are made to whistleblowers, financial rewards by the anti-corruption agency in place. So, um, you know, these are, are very coherent recommendations. The other recommendation around having an institutional home, no, if I'm a whistleblower, knowing that there is a place that I can go within the state where I can receive where I can be safe, where my complaints can be received, where there can be an assessment of my safety, and where required, I can receive those additional protections. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's got to be on the table in terms of our broad approach to uh, the types of anti-corruption reforms we want to see going forward. Karam Singh, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me.